Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 46, 8 through 11. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Well, welcome everyone uh, to New City Church. If we haven't met yet, my name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Uh, You may be wondering why I'm standing so far back on the stage. Um, It's not because I'm scared of you, but it's because earlier I found out that uh, due to my pacing, I am a little bit like a spiritual Batman emerging from the shadows. So I get to stand back farther today uh, for this service. Um, Before we jump into our uh, text this morning and studying uh, what God's teaching us in this series, I just had a couple of quick announcements. Uh, The first is, uh, since that announcement video, things have changed somewhat in our state. I don't know if you saw the new health orders that are emerging. Um, And a lot of people have had questions this week. They've been texting us asking what this means for New City. And I'm here to tell you that we don't know yet. Um, We are going to be meeting as staff and elders later uh, this week to talk through it. Um, so be praying for us as we meet and talk through what's next and what we're going to be doing for New City. Um, and keep a lookout. We're going to have some updates. We're going to be telling you about some things that are coming around the corner as well. Um, also, I just wanted to highlight one of the announcements up there. Uh, we are in need of volunteers for the church here. Um, if you guys are interested in serving and helping out, uh, we would love the help. Uh, We need help with kids and greeting and all kinds of different things. Um, I know it's been a huge blessing for us having kids ministry open. I have a two and a three and a half year old, uh, and they hadn't been to church in over a year until a couple weeks ago, until we were able to start bringing them again. And so um, if you're interested in serving, if you like kids or like know what kids are, like we would love to have you come help out and serve with us. Um, You can check out the announcement on the website, you can check out the welcome desk as well, or you can text serve to that number that was up there earlier uh, to get connected and find ways to serve here in our community. Um, With that, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll jump into our text together this morning. Jesus, thank you. Lord, thank you that we get to gather together this morning as your people. Lord, thank you that we get to gather together Um, and worship you. Lord, thank you for technology and people that are online and being able to be with one another across distance. Lord, I pray that this morning as we talk about listening, that you would open our ears to what you might be saying to us. Lord, that you would help us to see your work in the world around us. Lord, that your kingdom will come here as it is in heaven. Lord, above all else, I pray this morning that here in this moment that you would get glory in this place. And God, that your name would be made much of. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for all your good and your lovely and your gracious gifts. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Most of you probably missed this this week because it didn't happen here in America, but maybe the biggest sports story of our lifetime happened last week. Last Sunday, actually, 12 teams in the, from different European football leagues, known as soccer here, decided to break away from their different respective leagues and form their own Super League, called the European Super League. And it was a huge money grab. There was about $6 billion at at stake in this this move. 
And so these clubs decided to move away from what they were doing and move towards this new model. And it was a huge deal. And it came out of nowhere. People were surprised. People were taken off guard. And on Sunday, people started scrambling to react. The UEFA, the the group that manages the European football players, they actually came out and said, we're going to kick all these teams out out of their domestic leagues. FIFA, which manages the, all of the soccer in the world, said that the team, players that play for these teams can't play for their countries in the World Cup. All Coaches were asked after games, what, what do you think about this? And they're like, this is the first we're hearing about it. We don't know what's happening. Players were found in tears saying, we hope that this doesn't go through. Thing after thing after thing. It was, it was unbelievable, the reaction kind of the vitriol that these people face for this money grab, changing over a hundred years of history of soccer in this one moment. But what was even crazier was the fans' reaction. The fans all of a sudden started uniting across rivalries to protest this. That Sunday morning, mere like 12 hours after the announcement happened, Leeds and Liverpool played, which are two soccer teams for those of you that don't know. And these two teams have a history and a historic rivalry that goes back to the 1960s. They don't like each other at all. And their fans gathered together outside the arena to burn jerseys to protest Liverpool, who had joined this league. The next day, thousands of people gathered outside of Chelsea's stadium to protest, so much so that they couldn't get the buses through for the games, and they had to start the games late. The fan reaction was crazy. And a mere 48 hours after it happened, 24 hours, the first team pulled out and said, this was a bad idea, we're taking it back. And by the end of 48 hours, the league was dead because the, all the English teams had pulled out of this league. And what was interesting is I was listening to a podcast about it uh, because that's what you do when you're a sports nerd. And I was listen, after listening to billionaire after billionaire come forward and say, we, we didn't think about it, we didn't think about it, we're sorry, we take it back. One of the sports pundits said it's like they didn't listen to anybody outside of themselves. They just listened to the people that were in the room. It was super interesting because it reflected something that is, it was striking to me because these people had these grand plans, but they forgot to listen. Most of us probably missed this sports story this week because of everything else that was happening in the world. Most of you probably missed it because one of the biggest trials in our lifetime was occurring this week. And this week we found out the results of the Derek Chauvin trial, and it became appointment watching. I got alerts, and I watched people as they gathered around their phones and televisions to find out the results. And I found myself receiving texts and alerts on my phone about what was coming and the verdict as it happened. And it led to a plethora of opinion pieces and stories and testimonies speaking to the outcome And all while other news stories about shootings, both by police and mass violence, were creeping into the news. And at the same time, there was news breaking about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and news breaking about India, and all of the pandemic in India, and other stories that continued to bombard and beat down. And at the end of the week, I found myself overwhelmed by the noise that was this last week. That so much had occurred in our world. And I found it difficult to listen to anything at all. And which is probably not the best thing in the middle of our series because we're in the middle of a series called Bless, 
which is an acronym of how, kind of a way and a method of loving our neighbors. And we're learning how to think through what it means for us to be good neighbors in our city. Last week, we talked about being prayerful, praying for those around us. And this week, we're talking about listening. And when we were planning out this series, I have to confess that when I found out I was preaching on listening, my heart sank a little bit because I'm not very good at listening. It's not something that I'm great at. You can ask my wife and she will confirm that it's something that I'm not great at. And it's hard to listen. I don't think it's just a me problem, but it's hard to listen in a world that just feels so chaotic. Because even in the best of times, we're bad at listening to others. Especially in this season, in this last year, we found it hard to listen to others as we've become consumed with our own needs and hurts and frustrations and longing in light of the uncertainty that's been behind us and in front of us. And maybe I just at least should speak for myself that if I'm not careful, I could be far more engaged with myself inward than actually pointing myself outward towards my neighbor and listening to what's happening in their realities. But if only it was just a problem that we have of listening to others. Because I think there's a much bigger problem that for most of us, we're bad at listening to God. Because it's hard to listen to God. This last week, I was talking to a pastoral friend about this sermon, and he said, sometimes I feel like I'm speaking to the, ce- the ceiling, and then I'm listening, hoping the ceiling will speak back to me. And for most of us, this is the feeling that we have, that listening to God can feel like a futile exercise. But it's critical to our lives as followers of Jesus. And all this week, I found myself working on this sermon about listening to others, of what it means for us to listen to those around us. But I kept coming back to, and I felt like God was talking on my heart to talk about us listening to Him. To realize how listening to Him and His vision for the world actually changes how we love our neighbor. And so, as I wrestled with what to talk about, Psalm 46 just sat in the back of my mind and haunted me all week. See, Psalm 46 is this hymn that invites us to have confidence in God and in His presence as it dwells, dwells with us in the midst of trouble. It invites us to listen to God even in the direst of circumstances. So if you have your Bibles or smartphones, I'd invite you to open up to Psalm 46 and follow along. Um, and if you're a member of New City, I'm going to give you a fair warning. I'm the anti-Nate. I don't believe in slides. So um, I will try to give you uh, like handholds to go with as we go through this together. But I want to start by looking at the opening words of Psalm 46 and what it says. This, look what it says here. <clears throat> God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. The psalmist opens up by acknowledging something that will frame the rest of the psalms. 
God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The idea is that God is a place of hope and rest in the midst of turmoil. That God is strong in the midst of our weaknesses. That phrase right there at the end, that very present help, actually can be interpreted as a well-proved help. That God has proved Himself to help us and will do so again. The idea is that we have confidence because we know who has our back. I might have mentioned this before, but when I was in high school, I had like long, flowing, beautiful hair, blonde hair. Um, I kind of looked like, like young Justin Bieber if he lived a hard life, was what I looked like. But I used to love to go to hardcore concerts, which is not where people with long, flowing, blonde hair usually belong. And I would go to these hardcore concerts, and I knew that I always needed to have somebody that would have my back, which was typically my cousin Phil. Because I knew if something happened, if someone tried to step up to me, that my cousin would be behind me. That he would have my back in the midst of something that was going on. And in the same way, the psalmist is saying, God will always be there for his people. God will always have his people's back. Which is important because the psalmist then goes and paints a picture of a world turned upside down. The psalmist describes this dire and painful sea where the mountains are collapsing into the heart of the sea. And while this is a terrifying moment, just describing like a picture of turmoil, of natural disaster, of uncertainty, it actually goes a bit deeper in the mind of an ancient Near East listener. See, at the time, there was another creation myth that surrounded the people of uh, Israel. The other people, the Babylonian creation myth, was called the Enuma Elish. And the Enuma Elish tells the story of how the world was created. And in this creation myth, two fighting gods and their god armies go to battle against one another. Tiamat and Marduk. And as they fight one another, the battle is what creates the world. One of the gods will get their head lopped off and thrown into the sky and it becomes the sun. Another will lose a limb or something like that and it'll become the mountains. And as this happens around, Tiamat raises from the, does an unspeakable thing, in a moment of desperation, and out of the waters raises 11 beasts of chaos to fight war against the other gods. As Marduk beats Tiamat, he banishes those gods back to the realm of water. And the water becomes this unsafe place of chaos, where where chaos itself lives. After these battles, they decide, Marduk looks around and says, there's a lot of menial tasks in this world that we don't want to do. So they create mankind. They're kind of these slave insects to do all the tasks that are too low for the gods. Not really caring what happens to humanity. And so in this, a fear developed over the waters. This fear of this place of chaos. This place where beasts dwell. Where chaos incarnate lived. And so drowning for somebody in that world, being in the sea in the midst of a storm, wasn't just facing a storm, but it was actually facing chaos incarnate. It was a fear, drowning wasn't just a fear of dying, it was a fear of being dragged into hell itself, while also knowing that the gods don't really seem to want to protect you from it. A threat that came that knowing that the gods didn't care much for you. And so here, the waters are this place of chaos. And on the flip side, the mountains were a place of refuge. In that same creation myth, there's a story about how they actually tell the same flood account with some different details. And when the flood happens, 
the gods flee to the mountains to avoid the chaos of the waters as it rise around, rises around them. They hide because they don't want to engage or battle the forces of chaos. The New Testament, are, the Old Testament and the New Testament actually also talk about the mountains as a place of refuge. In Genesis 19, Lot and his family are sent to the mountains to hide from God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. The prophets are seen hiding in the hills and mountains all throughout the Old Testament from the oppression they face. And in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about how in the last days people will find refuge in the mountains. There's this picture that the mountains are this place of protection and safety. And now we get the picture of what the psalmist is getting at. That the place of protection and safety is collapsing into the place of chaos. It's a nightmare scenario where the forces of chaos are overcoming the forces of good. That these two representatives are colliding in this moment of utter calamity. And it's not only that though, but actually the nations around them are also raging against the people of God, it says. The world seems to be thrust into war and turmoil, creating an unsafe reality. Yet the psalmist does something interesting here. He said, we will not fear. And he continues to interject with the, this, the power of God with the common refrain, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is what it says in verses 8 and 9. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes the war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. See, God's power is over all of these forces and powers. That God says that as He speaks, everything else melts away. It says that they will not fear because God is seen taking the chaos of the waters and actually turning that chaotic waters into a river of life for His people. It's seen God making life where there was no life. The God at, that in Genesis 1 is seen hovering over the waters of creation, not doing battle with them, but already over those waters. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear, laying waste to those who would attack the people of God. God's power is greater than and over all nature, over all people, over all enemies, and over the entire cosmos. It's this great picture in Revelation 1 where you see Jesus holding the entirety of cosmos in his hand. It says that God will judge and put to death all these forces of chaos, that nothing can stand before the power of God. It's a little bit like this. I have a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, um, and if her and I went outside and played one-on-one -on -one basketball right now, it would probably not go well for Elliot because I'm three feet taller than she is. There's this idea, right? Like, it's an overwhelming force. It's something that can't be stopped. God is over all of chaos, over all of creation. And what's interesting, though, is that invitation, there's this invitation that's given right at the end. After all of this thing about the power of God, you'd expect God to stand up and assert who he is over creation. But instead, God speaks here at the end. And this is what it says in verse 10 and 11. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
right at the end, it's not the psalmist that's wrestling with the power of God, but God himself speaking about his powers. And his invitation as he speaks about who he is, is to be still and know. Now this proclamation actually has a double meaning. The first is the obvious one, that God is inviting his people, God is inviting us to come and be silent before who he is. To be quiet and to rest in him. To take refuge from the storm that is the world. There's something beautiful when we simply unplug from the noise and listen. I don't know if you've done this recently. I was walking uh, down, I was walking through a park on Monday and I was listening to a podcast and my headphones died. And I'm pretty constantly plugged in. It's a bad habit of mine. But I took the headphones out, put them back in their charging uh, box. I don't know what to call it. We'll call it a box. And I'm walking down the park. And I'm walking through nature. And I hear the birds chirping. I walk under a fruit-bearing tree. And I see the flowers and the trees buzzing because of all the bees. All of a sudden, in that stillness, I saw a world that wasn't there before. And in that same way, God invites us into stillness with him to hear his voice in the midst of turmoil. To hear what he is doing in a world that can feel upside down. But there's a second proclamation here as well. There's a second meaning to what God is saying. That word, be still, in Hebrew can also just be translated as God shouting silence to creation. See, God is telling the chaotic world to be silent because Yahweh is God over all things. And this phrase is actually used again in the Bible later on in Mark 4 when, God spe- or when Jesus tells the wind and the waves to be still. God speaks directly to the chaos of the world, both the chaos that is internal in our lives that reigns over and the external things around it and tells it to cease. See, God is over the cosmos. Everything from the smallest blade of grass to the grandest of stars. And yet, the God, and yet that God, the God who brings all chaos to cease, invites us to come and listen to Him. To be in relationship with Him. He invites us to rest and hear His vision for the world. He's not a distant God that runs off to the mountains at the first sign of trouble but a God who sits with us in the midst of our chaos. See, the psalmist recognizes something that we need to see. We can't understand the world around us, even our neighbors, until we spend time listening to God. And in a world that's upside down, it can feel hard to turn our focus to those people around us. And to be honest, that's fair. Because until we spend time with God resting, from the chaos of the world, the God who is above all things, we're actually unable to listen to others. Because of this, the psalmist can teach us actually quite a few things about listening. The first thing I think the psalmist wants to teach us is this. Listening begins with realizing how the world around you is shaping you. This may seem like a weird place to start, but the psalmist is speaking to how we can be discipled by the noise around us. The word discipleship just means being formed into something. It means being developed into something. You can be a disciple of yoga. You can be a disciple of your favorite celebrity. You can be a disciple of some different worldview. But 
for Christian discipleship, it means growing in the way of Jesus, following after the way of Jesus. Yet discipleship for the follower of Jesus occurs in a world where it is pressing in on us constantly. This is what I think the psalmist is getting at. The psalmist acknowledges something that has certainly not changed since his time of writing. That we live in a world that is constantly fighting for our affections and our attentions. The psalmist lived in a world that felt chaotic, where there were natural disasters, where the, everything felt like it was falling apart, where wars raged and threatened the security of God's holy city in Jerusalem. And as these things raged around him, he certainly would have struggled to keep his focus on who God was and what God was doing. And this sounds quite a bit like our world today as well. We live in a world that is constantly vying for our attention and affections, using the chaos as reason for their methods. We can just look back at the last year with politics and see the way it's divided us, and in fact the way that it's even divided God's people. We live in kingdoms of entertainment where judgments are made on what type of music, literature, or television content you consume. And technology is constantly at war for our affections. If you don't believe me, we can look at the stats. Um, smartphone users, on average, touch their phone about 2,500 times a day. Actually, over 2,500. I think it's like 2,617 on average. On average, most adults with a smartphone are on their phone about four hours a day, which if you do the math, averages out to a little over 50 days a year. Beyond that, during the, during the pandemic, the American adult consumed about eight hours of content daily, which led to a common refrain and a common text message, one that I also got on Sunday mornings, um, because screen time actually rose 33%, and I would get texts every once in a while on Sunday morning uh, from friends that would say they were sending out prayers for me as I received my weekly screen time report. And due to all of this, all of these things that are fighting for our attention, our attention span, some people, some studies have shown, has dropped to about eight seconds, which is about one full second less than a goldfish. We live in a world that is constantly fighting for our attention. And the secret is, is that the world is really good at discipling us. The world is really good at deforming us from the way of Jesus and forming us into something else, especially when it comes to the art of listening. Yet the call of the psalmist is to be still and know. See, for us to be able to listen to both God and neighbor, we have to realize first and foremost what we're actually listening to in the first place and how those voices are shaping us. And in the midst of that, God invites us in the midst of all of the noise and all of the chaos of the world to sit with Him, to rest with Him that as the nations rage around us to be quiet with God. That as the chaos seems to press in and we don't know what to do, God invites us to rest with Him and in his good news. The invitation is to rest, to be discipled, and to rest in the good news of Jesus. And Jesus, who came near to us to listen to our hurts and pains. And Jesus, who lived and died and resurrected and ascended, that we could be set free. Who invites us to follow after his way in this upside-down kingdom of his where all who call on Him are welcomed at the table. And the question is, for us, 
and for you and for me is are you following after Jesus? Are you listening to His voice? Maybe it's time to take stock of your discipleship to ask yourself if you're being still and knowing God. Or are there other voices that are overcoming His voice in your life? This is actually why the monks would practice and still do practice both silence and simplicity. They remove pleasures and pursuits in order to be discipled by God, to create space so that they can know God and how He has called them to live in the world. Now, what I'm not telling you is that you need to go join a monastery. Although I do think the Desert Fathers are doing the Lord's work and brewing good beer. But instead, maybe it's time to take stock of the voices that you're listening to. And if you're creating time to be still and know God. And this is critical to the art of neighboring because once we begin to listen to God, to follow the way of Jesus, it totally reframes how we love our neighbor and how we listen to our neighbor. Because the second thing that the psalmist can teach us is listening to God reframes how we listen to our neighbor. Beholding the face of God helps us to behold how God looks at them. In Genesis 1, it says that God created humanity in his image. And even after sin enters the world, God never takes this statement back. God never takes this idea of imageness back from humanity. Something innate about humans bears a unique resemblance, an imprint of God. That means that all people are still made in the image of God. And this means that you've never met someone who doesn't bear God's image. C.S. Lewis, in his masterpiece, The Weight of Glory, describes this, what that means in eternity for us as we observe those around us. He says this, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as now you meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, and all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nation, culture, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it's immortals who we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. See, Lewis saw, saw the idea that God was getting at in speaking of people in eternity. That as Jesus saves us, we speak to those who bear the image of God around us. Yet so often, our response isn't to hold our neighbor in the same regard as God does, but instead to hold them in contempt. And what I mean by that is not that like, we hate our neighbors or things like that, but more of a suburban contempt. Like that we don't have front, por front porches because we've exchanged them for bigger garages. That we drive in and out and never interact with our neighbors. That we keep ourselves insulated in our safe bubbles and avoid those around us. Or maybe it's just me sometimes. But when we listen to God and His view of people, it's hard to dismiss the value and beauty that He places on neighbor. It gives us permission to be present with who God has made our neighbors to be. 
It changes how we view those around us, their stories and their struggles. And we're invited to see people through God's lens. And let's be honest, there's a tension here. Because while it's beautiful in theory, it's also a terrifying sentiment to practice loving your neighbor well. If you're an introvert in the room, I know that this is your nightmare. Extroverts, you get a little bit of an uphand. But it doesn't have to be big. But it just starts by listening to God and your neighbor. We start by listening to God. See, one key difference between the psalmist and us is that God is now present with us. That his spirit, is not, his spirit dwells with us, not in a temple made by human hands. Last week, we talked about the importance of prayer and how prayer moves in mighty ways. How in it, God meets us in the midst of our longings and our needs and loves for our neighbor and hears what we have to say and he works mightily in the midst of it. But at the same time, we're also invited to listen as we pray. In our crazy world, we're invited to listen to Jesus, to sit with Jesus. And so this week, I would encourage you, take some time to, li- to pray for your neighbors, but also to listen to what God may be calling you to. Take a walk around your neighborhood in silence and just listen to what's going, around, going on around with your neighbors. Listen to see if God is calling you in a unique way to a person or a place. But don't stop there. Actually take time to listen to the stories of your neighbors. Because the second thing we have to practice is not just listening to God, but also listening to others. See, out of sitting with Jesus, then we're invited to love and listen to our neighbors. To hear your neighbor's story, to hear what God might be doing in the people around you, in the places that you live and work and play. And it doesn't have to be anything big. It can just be asking someone how their week is going. Or asking them how they ended up in your neighborhood. Or just simply introducing yourself if you've never done so before. There's cards in your seat. Those are a really helpful tool. They're a grid about your neighborhood. And they might be helpful just to think through who your actual neighbors are. And as you start listening to your neighbors, you might be surprised about who's around you. The football coach that moved into your neighborhood to be closer to the school that he coaches at. The older Egyptian man who's a Coptic Christian that fled persecution years ago. To the blended family across the street with Panama and Cuba origins. To the foster families on your street that have taken in a ton of kids because they love and care about the city, even as they don't follow the way of Jesus. Or at least those are some of the stories that are in my neighborhood. And To be fair, my wife has learned those stories better than I have. But it starts with listening to the people around you. And it it starts ultimately with being still and knowing God. Listening to God actually frees us to listen to our neighbors well. I have a dear friend and mentor who has taught me this over the last few years. Um, Her name is Sherry. When I was a a high school pastor, she was one of my high school leaders. She's a, uh, she joined our high school group. She was kind of the grandma of our high school group when I was there. Um, But she listens to God better than anyone else. She's got an unbelievable story. I I can't tell it all now, but um, her husband was killed tragically in front of her. Um, by a runaway driver, and she's since reconciled with that person. But she's very, very good at opening her ears to what God is doing in the world around her. One day last year, we were sitting down for coffee, and I was asking her about 
um, if she had had any stories recently or God had been doing anything. And she told me this story about how one uh, morning she woke up and just kind of woke up feeling heavy and um, reliving some of the memory of her husband passing. So she got on her bike um, because that was where she prayed. And so she started biking on a road bike. And as she was going along, she saw someone who kind of looked lost and she decided to keep biking past them and felt like God was saying, no, turn around, go talk. Turn around, go talk to this person. She said she went a little ways down the road before she finally felt like God was saying, go talk to this person. She said, fine. So she went back, said, hey, you look a little lost. Can I help you? This person was looking how to get to the mountains. So she gave this woman directions and said, yeah, you go here, and then you're going to go up there. You're a little off track, but you'll figure it out. She said she got back on her bike and started to bike away. She said she got one pedal in, and God said, no, go listen. Actually talk to the person. So she went back, and she said, this is going to sound super weird, but, you know, I was just praying and felt like God wanted me to ask you your story. She said she felt a little awkward in the moment. The woman started tearing up and said, I'm headed to the mountain to spread my husband's ashes. He died unexpectedly. In that moment, because Sherry had been listening to God and took time to listen to her neighbor, she was able to proclaim what God had done in her story back and actually has developed a relationship with this woman and has continued to talk about what Jesus is doing. See, for us to listen to our neighbor, we have to first listen to God. Oh, brothers and sisters, may we be people that listen to God, that pay attention to his call for us. And out of that, may we listen and love and live with our neighbors and know their stories as we share the good news of Jesus and how we live.